Hello, and you are listening to Eco-Justice Radio from the KPFK Los Angeles studio. A project of SoCal 350 Climate Action, our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame, featuring voices not necessarily heard on traditional, mainstream, or even public media outlets. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge. Today's episode is called Social Equity in a Zero Waste Baltimore. Today's guests joining us via phone are Melanie Thomas, Shoshanda Campbell, and Greg Sattel, all leadership organizers with United Workers in Baltimore, Maryland. Melanie Thomas is a published author and member of the South Baltimore Community Land Trust. Her work focuses on mobilizing youth leadership and community leadership around environmental injustice and affordable housing. Shishada Campbell is a member of the South Baltimore Community Land Trust. She began as a high school student that co-founded Free Your Voice, an advocacy group that was successful in shutting down the proposal of an incinerator. And Greg Sattel is also a co-founder of the Free Your Voice group. He has been instrumental in accelerating the zero waste movement in South Baltimore. Cities around the world are creating plans and setting goals to achieve zero waste. By definition, a zero-waste city is one that eventually diverts 90% or more of its waste away from landfill or incineration and works to create and implement systems that do not generate waste in the first place. However, diversion of wasted resources is not the only marker of success when it comes to achieving zero waste. In order to have a truly zero-waste city, the plan must be equitable and the solution safe, community-led, and available to all. The management and conservation of resources must be done in a way that causes no harm to land, water, or air that threaten the environment or human health. And if it does, then that system needs to be transformed, such as frontline impacts from refining and manufacturing plastic or the irresponsible disposal of waste onto other countries. The city of Baltimore is setting the standard for a racially and economically just zero-waste plan that goes beyond the successful management of resources and waste by lifting up human rights values and ensuring that those communities who are historically burdened by the ill effects of waste system are made a priority. From the United Workers website, frontline communities in South Baltimore and across the city have drafted, in partnership with Zero Waste National Experts, a fair development plan for zero waste that will provide a near-term plan to help close and move past local incinerators, expand waste collections including public investment in cleaning up vacant lands and illegal dumping sites, and create hundreds of local living wage jobs. Baltimore is helping lead the way by creating an equitable standard from which all city zero-waste plans should emulate. Thank you for tuning in to Eco-Justice Radio and this episode called Social Equity in a Zero-Waste Baltimore. It is my honor to welcome to the show our special guests joining us via phone, Melanie Thomas, Shoshanda Campbell, and Greg Sautel, all of which are leadership organizers from United Workers in Baltimore, Maryland. Welcome to the show, everyone. Shashanda, what is the mission of United Workers? The mission of United Workers is to focus on environmental justice, workers' rights, and housing, and looking at all of these issues and our communities through an equity lens and also through our human rights value, which is equity, participation, universality, transparency, and accountability. 
So it's focusing on all those issues, starting from grassroots with people in communities um, and try to figure those strategies to fix those issues. And you're a leadership organizer with United Workers. What are you focusing on specifically in your role? What in- inspired you to become a, an, to become active in this work? Um, well, my role is a community organizer in youth education. I got involved when I was in high school and for your voice, which is a group um, that we started out of Benjamin Franklin High School. And through that group, we realized that there was a proposal to build the nation's largest incinerator less than a mile away from our school. And so we started fighting that proposal. Um, and it took five years, but then we won. And so that's how I got involved. And I'm still here because I love, I have a passion for the work because our communities have been a dumping ground for so long, and I wanted to be a part of fixing that rather than running from it as if it's not happening. Um, and so that's why I'm still here, and I get to empower youth to do the same thing, to speak out loud about what's happening in that community and know that they have a voice to change it. Thank you. And Melanie and Greg, the city of Baltimore is working on what is called a Fair Development Plan for Zero Waste. What is meant by fair development, and why is this necessary when looking at a zero-waste plan? And just to piggyback off of what Shashanda just shared, fair development is necessary because historically the development in Baltimore has not, has not been fair. Um, disadvantaged communities um, like our communities, I live in Curtis Bay in South Baltimore, and it's the forgotten neighborhood or the forgotten part of Baltimore City that um, is often disinvested in and historically disinvested in. So this plan really uplifts the need for all communities to be offered services and for no communities to bear the burden of um, carrying all the toxic pollution and um, waste that we see in our currently in that, that fill South Baltimore neighborhoods. And, and this city zero-waste plan, given what you just said, it, it differs from many other plans. Why, why is that? This plan is really the first plan uh, that really doesn't just look at it through the, the lens of waste um, and not just looking at just getting to zero waste, but looking at what's causing the waste and um, what conditions participants and members of the community, community members, are are given, you know, what, what choices do they have? Right now, our current system only depends on incineration or landfills, and there are other options, and we need to explore that because these current options pollute uh, these disadvantaged communities, and we are um, saturated with health conditions and asthma and cancer and, you know, all of these different things that are caused and directly linked to um, emissions from incineration and other toxic chemical companies. And that all being said, what what does it mean to be a zero-waste city then? So in our case in Baltimore, uh, what it means to be a zero-waste city uh, is to be led in that process by frontline communities uh, like folks who are living in Curtis Bay and South Baltimore, but in other parts of the city as well, who are experiencing the same intolerable conditions. Uh, so it means that the process by which we achieve zero waste is also one that advances racial, social, and economic equity. 
the conditions we have in Baltimore uh, are different than some cities that are embarking on zero waste, but they're, they're not too different. Uh, we work closely with folks in Detroit who have recently uh, won a major victory to shut down an incinerator. And like Baltimore, they have a staggering rate of evictions. They have a staggering number of vacant properties, vacant land and buildings. And they, too, see a real connection on the ground between who controls and make decisions about land and development and trash on the streets, litter on the ground, and what happens to materials when we don't have uh, a system that allows for communities to be in the driver's seat about what happens on land in their very neighborhoods. Um, so to pursue zero waste in Baltimore, uh, as Melanie said, means to get at the roots of the issue. Um, and for us in Baltimore, uh, it's very practical. We cannot ignore land ownership when we're trying to create new infrastructure, when we're trying to uh, eliminate the fact that we have uh, thousands of vacant lots and buildings that are used as dumping grounds, particularly in low-income communities of color. When did this concept of a zero-waste plan launch in Baltimore? So the, the plan launched uh, by a team of youth leaders in South Baltimore uh, on March 16th of, uh, of 2018. But the, the, the roots of the launch go back much further uh, to the work of Shoshanda and other uh, high school students in South Baltimore who were able to step up and commit five years beginning with research to learn about this proposal to build the largest incinerator in U.S. history, less than a mile away from their school. And it was through that research that we started to learn about the alternatives, that there were communities across the country and the world that were uh, challenging the status quo and, and, and had the courage to say that we can not only dream of a world where it's unacceptable to use any neighborhood as a dumping ground, but we can actually lead the way to achieving that. So it was really learning about that through research that gave us the courage to stand up to this incinerator proposal and win the victory to stop it. And along the way, we were able to convince our political leaders, some of them who continue to work with, work with us now, that we really did have alternatives, that we could do better than relying on toxic trash incinerators and landfills, that there were alternatives. And some of them were, uh, were new and a lot of them were old. A lot of them were returning to um, techniques and strategies that have been forgotten, but that can be restored. So things like reuse and repair of uh, materials rather than buying into this endless sea of overconsumption. The idea that we can find value in materials and view them as precious and view the land beneath our feet as sacred um, is something very old that we're looking to, to restore and renew and regenerate through this Fair Development Plan for Zero Waste. And even soil regeneration and composting. Shoshanda, Shoshanda, before we jump into what the waste infrastructure looks like and and talk a little bit more about the incineration, first, what is meant by environmental justice and social equity as it relates to zero waste? When I think about um, environmental justice, um, by definition, it is the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income with respect to development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. Um, and the system that now that we have in place doesn't respect that because it's putting industries like incinerators and landfills, it's concentrating all of that 
in the South Baltimore community um, with people of color and people in poverty, um, basically saying that they don't matter, um, that their health don't matter. Um, and that, to me, is the definition of um, environmental injustice, um, putting this in black and poor communities and burdening them with the impacts. It speaks to that the asthma rate here is way higher in Baltimore um, compared to other places. Um, and I, that is because of all of these polluting industries um, being concentrated here, um, especially in the South Baltimore community. Melanie, describe for us Baltimore's existing waste infrastructure and the issues they're experiencing. The Um, the current system that we have right now, we have um, a recycling day and a trash day. And one that has really, the recycling really was poorly implemented. We started out with two-day trash pickup out of, out of the week. And it just really did not, it was not effective. And one way of trying to say, well, okay, we're, we're really trying to do a push for less ways to implement recycling, but the recycling was not affordable. The recycling bins, first off, they aren't free. So not everybody had access to them. And those that did or may have had um, recycling bins, they were not being picked up in certain communities. So, and then also for um, the, the projects or the... Um, low-income housing, they are not offered recycling as an option. It's only trash. And that trash pickup is not even consistent, um, as we've heard from a lot of our residents that, that live there. So the system, again, like you have to buy your recycling containers if you want, if you want to recycle, if you want to, to do, you know, the right thing. <laughs> um, and then really... If you're doing recycling, it's no guarantee that it will be picked up. And the money, you know, that people are paying for for illegal dumping is not really going back into our communities. So we're really, the poor communities continue to bear the burden and don't really benefit from the current system that we have. Um, the trash collection days are not consistent, and the recycling is not um, actually being recycled. So... The, the system that we have really needs some fixing, and this plan really dives into some alternatives that we can do to fix the current system that we have, which is a failed system of development. Shoshanda, there are social environmental justice issues happening in the community of Baltimore that people may not understand are interconnected to waste issues, just what we spoke about right now. And one of the most obvious being these impacts from Two incinerator plants, waste-to-energy plants, the burning of resources. Your team has been fighting these facilities for quite a long time, even before the idea of the zero-waste plan. What are these incinerators, and what are they used for? Well, the incinerators are um, large machines that um, only have, like, limited people working at them. Um, And you just control the machinery. You put waste into it, um, you burn it, um, and you collect ash. And then you take, then the ash here gets taken to the landfill. Um, and so they're used to burn our precious resources. And 
what are the human health and environmental issues that are associated with these types of facilities? Our incinerator here is our number one polluter. Um, and the Chesapeake, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation has shown and put a number, like an actual figure, to the health impact that it's costing. And that number was $55 million a year um, to these communities. Um, that's in asthma. That's in cancer. That's in all these upper respiratory illnesses um, that's happening in our community. And I see it even when I'm in the classrooms or when I'm talking with people around, like, when I ask how many people in here have asthma and, like, 90% of the hands go up. And that's just mm-hmm. not normal. Um, but it's been normalized here because it's been happening for a long time. Yeah, because you're a frontline community and, and you're dealing with it. When everybody else is, has it, then it just becomes the thing that, you know, becomes normalized, like you said. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Ego Justice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles. We are here with Melanie Thomas, Shashanda Campbell, and Greg Sattel, all leadership organizers with United Workers, discussing social equity in a zero-waste Baltimore. What have the United Workers been doing to fight these incineration facilities? And what has been the outcome? Well, we have been doing a lot of research around figuring out what it's burning. Like, we found out that it burns, um, 80% of what it burns could be recycled or composted. Uh, and we're doing a lot, um, like the Zero Waste Plan, for example, trying to make sure that people are aware that there are alternatives to burning and burying, um, because that's the lie that we've been told, that there are not. Um, and we're trying to make sure that the contract here with our incinerator is up in 2021. And we're trying to make sure that is not renewed. There has been a Clean Air Act that has been passed, and that was by the Energy Justice Network, um, who's done a lot of figuring that out, like how to put um, regulations um, to how much it can pollute here. Um, and we're just trying to make sure that that law is followed, because that law will shut down our incinerator if it's followed. Um, and putting forward all of the, the views that we, the visions that we could have for our community if we went to um, zero waste. And there are two facilities, right? There was one that was shut down. Is that correct? We have one was a proposal, but we do have two facilities. We have a medical waste incinerator that's in South Baltimore, and we have incinerator Bresco, which is also in South Baltimore. And then we also have a landfill, and all of those are in South Baltimore. And without the incinerators, these human health impacts would decrease, which means the economic val- uh, viability would increase because you're not spending so much on uh, health costs at the same time as well. Exactly. Um, and we can breathe. As we <laughs> can breathe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why should incineration, I think we've answered this, but I just want to hear it again why should incineration not be included in a city zero-waste plan, and why is it not a zero-waste solution? And I say this because there's a lot of countries that are like, we are Sweden, I think it is, we, we are a zero-waste country, or Germany, we're going as a zero-waste country, but they're burning, they're incinerating a lot of their truly recyclable material, their resources. Why is this not part of a city zero-waste plan? Just like what I think you um, hit on it earlier, when you say zero waste, zero waste is um, the conservation of all resources by means of responsible production, consumption, reuse, and recovery of products, packaging, and material without burning 
and with no discharge to land, water, or air that is threatened the environment or human health. Incineration does all of that. <laughs> it's burning our resources. Like a lot of that that we're burning, we can be turning into other things, like by recycling. We can be putting back the food into the soil um, and growing more food. Um, and it's discharging onto our air like every day. And we've been seeing this. We've been feeling the impacts of this. So that cannot be a part of that because when you pick up zero waste, you can't have a dumping ground community. Um, and we have that. And I'm pretty sure a lot of other places have that too if they're incinerating. Oh, yeah. And you had mentioned Detroit being one of those too. Um, yeah, and these incineration facilities, we call it feeding the beast because you have to, they're extremely expensive. And these cities go in debt in order to, you know, have contracts with these companies to bring them in and then they have to feed the beast if you don't feed the beast it's not like the beast is there and it's like oh i'll just wait when you have some trash and i'll burn that no it has to continuously be burning material in order to pay its bills and that material a lot of people like the only burns the non-recyclables no it burns the recyclables too and when you burn this stuff that resource is gone you can't turn it into anything else um exactly and so go on to that it's like we're also here we're getting trash from other places like baltimore county we get their trash their trash is feeding our incinerator and right now they're not they weren't producing enough waste and so they're being sued by the incinerator because they're not giving them enough waste um so you can't have both you cannot have a zero waste um community in an incinerator it's just not possible because like you said it would starve it of what it needs. So you, it wouldn't make a profit and there would be no use for them. There would be no reason for them to be doing it because they're not making money. And that's what it's about to them. It's about making money when zero waste is about caring about our environment and about our people. Um, and so it can't be space for both. There's a episode that we did, episode 19, uh, with a woman named Tina Nagata from the Non-Plastic Maori, and she referred to the importing of waste when we take our recyclables or our trash and we take it to another country and we're like, hey, you try to deal with this stuff, and then we call it diversion, right? She, she refers to that importing of waste into New Zealand and other places as waste colonization, and it's... To me, it sounds the same thing with incineration when we're when we're taking waste from other cities and then going and dumping it into the neighboring city in order to feed this this fire monster. It's still subscribing to that same concept of waste colonization. That concept of waste colonization is what we uh, have experienced in Baltimore directly with that Energy Answers incinerator proposal, which is the the proposal that Shoshanda and many, many others joined together to prevent. The way that proposal was marketed to Baltimore, to Baltimore officials who ultimately signed off on it, uh, was to make uh, South Baltimore a trash destination for all of the East Coast waste. They marketed as an opportunity to capitalize on a flow of what they viewed as a commodity uh, flowing through Baltimore. And they said Baltimore could capture that flow of trash and burn it uh, right in South Baltimore. And so that was exactly the way the this was a billion-dollar development was, was pitched, and it garnered a lot of public support. And if it had not been for residents who were directly impacted, looking at it through an economic lens, through an environmental lens, a human rights and, and a social justice and equity lens, 
uh, we would be living as a uh, right next door to a, a hub in a larger system of waste colonization. And you also have open-air coal pile and other toxic chemical companies that are just compounding this environmental and health impact. What has the cost, the financial burden, been on the community? Well, there's a, there's, there's a clear financial cost uh, from the Bresco incinerator that's been quantified, um, $55 million every year in health damages. We see that when we go into classrooms, when we talk to friends and neighbors, um, and the, the rate of asthma. We know the statistics, and we know the impact on people that we care about. Um, and so we haven't so we've begun to quantify it, but really the, the research and the, the attention paid um, is really insufficient at this point to measure up to the impact that we know to be true. What we do know is folks in South Baltimore in a community like Curtis Bay are living 15 years less than in other communities in the same city. Um, and so we, we know that this is affecting people's lives. People are dying prematurely. The avertable death rate in South Baltimore communities is amongst the highest in 2008 and 2009, uh, the zip code that Curtis Bay and other South Baltimore communities are in had the highest rate of toxic air emissions in the entire country. Uh, so it's staggering. Mm-hmm. It also has a social cost. So when we go knocking on doors and we talk to folks that have been in the neighborhood for a while who have lived across the street from an open-air coal pile, uh, have to wipe down their cars and their homes uh, every day because of the coal dust that blows onto the the, the, the facade of their homes or onto their cars, they tell us a clear message. They say, we're not going to change this. Curtis Bay is and always has been a dumping ground. And at first, that was pretty jarring to hear. But when we learned the history, when we understood where that came from, from generations, from decades of being used, literally, this is not a catchphrase, as the dumping ground for Baltimore to allow for a development that's all about growth and profit over people, planet, and in our environment, we were humbled, and we understood where that was coming from. That was real. So, in order to reverse that and not and regenerate our communities, we have to understand the history. We have to understand the problem that we're up against, and we've learned from fellow residents and from learning our history um, how the cumulative impacts over time create not only uh, shorter lifespans but also limit our ability to imagine what our communities could be. Shoshanda, Baltimore's Fair Development Plan for Zero Waste sets some very specific goals, requests that one may not usually see in an average city zero waste plan. I want to break down some of these goals and what they mean for the community. The plan calls for something that is referred to as mission-based recycling. What is that? Mission-based recycling is emphasizing on the education and building trust with the public and the workers to keep materials clean and contamination rates low. Compared to big companies like right now that's picking up our waste, um, which is Waste Management, it's a huge company who's also making money through landfills and incineration. So its mission is not to get us down to several ways. It's not to get us to recycle more. It's just to make profit. But that's the difference between that in mission-based recycling, which is to really educate the community and keep the um, keep investments going into the community by keeping it local and keeping the jobs for the community um, to be able to get. That's not temp jobs because that's what waste management does. Long-term sustainable jobs. Yes. 
And earlier, we discussed the lack of recycling availability. How did the goals go about expanding the recycling and, and other waste services? What, what are those proposed services that, the, that this plan is going to provide? Um, it's going to provide, um, like Ms. Mel touched on earlier, talking about how the recycling that we have right now, you have to pay for containers. I'm looking at that through an equity lens. Um, some people can't afford that. Some people can't afford to buy their own containers. Um, and so the plan is... Um, it's wrote that everyone gets um, free containers um, to be able to recycle. Um, and making that available for real in a real way, that's not, hey, you can recycle, but we won't come pick it up. Yeah. But that when you recycle, we'll pick it up. And educating people on what could be recycled because some people don't know. And just being transparent and how um, where the recycling is going um, yeah, and keeping it at a community level. And they're going to do recycling, uh, organics, uh, like putrescible matter, things that can be composted, and landfill container. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. There's also and all on the oh, yeah. same day because right now our waste system it does um, recycling on one day and then it does trash on another. Um, the expanding um, on the recycling is that we'll have all three of those um, picked up. Make it more convenient, accessible, mm-hmm. and you know, easy to use. There's also a program to ensure a community land trust. Can you describe what this program entails and what is meant by community land trust? So the community land trust um, is a way that we can do development without displacement because we've seen in our communities a lot where other people try to do it for us, um, and either there's only three options for that. People can come in and they can do it for us, but the properties um, and the houses that they're creating, um, hence at the eviction rate, um, it's not going to be affordable to our community. So we would have to be displaced for that to happen. Or we can just, we can let it just stay the same. Uh, we can have our communities have a lot of vacants and have homeless people. Um, or we can do the development ourselves through land trust work um, and getting these getting these lands, like um, the dollar vacant lot that we're trying to do, uh, which is in the plan, um, to really t- talk to being able to buy lots that's been vacant for a long time, which a lot of the our community has been. I mean, getting those into a land trust and protect it where we can do permanently affordable housing and keep our residents in and give them the rights that they deserve, which is housing at a price that's affordable for with, for them. And also creating, like, local food uh, local ram food gardens within those vacant lots? Because uh, I, I am assuming, like many frontline communities, that Baltimore is experiencing food deserts where there's limited access to affordable and nutritious food. So having these gardens would also support so- social equity, correct? Oh, absolutely. Um, where in Curtis Bay, there isn't really a grocery store you can go to. So that's not there. But we do have um, a Stillbridge Street Garden, which is where they do composting um, at a where it's youth led, and they allow the community to come and plant fruits and vegetables and grow them and then eat them. And so we can do a lot when the community does it, like the garden. And we have built park. We have built a park on one of the lots, um, which was definitely youth led. They figured out that spot and they wanted to create a safe spot in their community, and they've done that. And so when we're looking at it from a land trust lens, we're looking at it through the community can really 
make that change that they want to see internally, not someone coming out and doing it for them, especially doing it in a way that they can't even be a part of it. And, and that helps to avoid that potential of gentrification because the ownership is coming from the community and not other people coming in and saying, look, we're going to make your community, quote, so much better and we're going to raise it up like this. And then then those people that, that are within the community can't even afford to be in the community. Exactly. And we see that a lot. And we're just trying to protect this, our community and make sure that doesn't happen. And that's why we need that dollar vacant lots where we can get as much properties as possible for as many people and families that want to stay that deserve to stay because they've been here through the burning, through the pollution, um, and they should be able to be a part of it when it's getting better. When it's clean. That change that they've been wanting to see for a long time. Yes. There's funds that are associated with the Zero Waste Plan as well. Where is that money coming from, and how do you ensure that it goes back into the community, that same concept of avoiding that gentrification? How, how, how does the community get to use those funds? We did at the Fund the Trust, which was an initiative that was led um, by United Workers around um, primary affordable housing, realizing that that we did have a high eviction rate and that people were being evicted and that things were being put out on the street. We did a campaign, the trust fund, to secure $20 billion a year by taxing property taxes over properties that cost a million dollars and over to be able to get those funds to put back into building houses in these communities that's on community land trust land. And also trying to get twenty uh, a commitment for $20 million annually from municipal economic development bonds or other revenue sources. So it's really trying to pair out efforts and then getting support from, like, public um, funds and from governmental agencies to be able to support these efforts that's going on in the community. And those efforts that are only going to make those communities and that, that government, those government entities that much stronger because it's going to raise the economic benefit and the health and of the people who are working there. That's fantastic. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Eco-Justice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles. We are here with Melanie Thomas, Shoshanda Campbell, and Greg Sattel, all leadership organizers with United Workers discussing social equity in a zero-waste Baltimore. Melanie, there is also a city position that I find quite interesting. It is called an equity officer. If, if I understand it correctly, the role is not directly related to the zero waste program specifically, but it will be necessary for its implementation. What is a what is an equity officer and what is the role what is their role in the city? Um, great question. Um, so our city council president um, as a city council member at the time implemented an equity assessment program. And what that does is it really um, challenges organizations and government um, entities to have an equity officer, a position where that person would look at their programs, look at their services through a lens of equity, making sure that um, cities that are disadvantaged and disinvested in do not bear the burden but are offered and, and offered services equally on an equal playing field and given resources equally throughout the city of Baltimore. So that pretty much is what an equity officer would do. Um, Greg, do you have anything to add to that? And that's for all programs, right? Yes. 
all government agencies will be responsible for having that equity officer to be able to, to evaluate their programs and look through and make sure that they're following the equity guidelines and, again, making sure that communities like South Baltimore do not be dumping grounds and are not left out of advancements or, you know, alternatives that are going to make the community better. And the concept of zero waste has sort of become this uh, online influencer craze over the past five years. However, the name zero waste and the involvement from a city level started back in the 1980s. A lot of what we're seeing on social media is this narrow focus on personal behavior, which is incredibly important, but not the total zero waste picture or intent. Why is equity not only important, but absolutely necessary when we talk about zero waste? I mean, you've heard so much from my colleagues already, Shoshanda and Greg, uh, where communities like South Baltimore, disadvantaged communities, communities with a majority of low-income people um, are left. They don't really have a say at, at the what goes on in their community and um, what disadvantages they're they're given you know they're just told to you know just survive or that's only that's the only option that we have to do is just survive but now we really want to thrive and in order to thrive things need to change we cannot stand for the status quo we can't continue to stand for the conditions and the way things have been Um, we cannot have concentrations of toxic waste pollutants in concentrated in communities that have high asthma rates, that don't have a grocery store, that aren't offered recycling, that are not offered advantages that other agencies and entities, other communities are throughout Baltimore City. We want and deserve and demand that change happens. And equity, you know, we want things to be offered to all. We know how to compost. You know, we want, and those that don't know can learn and want to learn how to compost. Like Shoshanda said earlier, 80% of what we burn can be composted or recycled. That in itself, if we really look at that, you know, if we really take a chance to step back and teach what is compostable, what is recyclable, we can really be making drastic changes in our communities. And again, if we're looking at the eviction rates, we are the second highest eviction rate next to under Detroit. So Detroit, number one, and we're number two. That's a problem. Evictions, you look around, you see certain communities, again, like in South Baltimore, um, you pass corners where you just see people's furniture, people's beds, couches, you know, everything, all their personal things just laid out there on the side of the street. And so many homeless and displaced persons, that's a problem, and we need to change that. And that's this equity, this fair, Baltimore's fair development plan for zero waste really looks at all of those factors and says that we can't continue to stand for this. We need a change, and this is going to be the beginning of change for our city once we follow and we hold officials accountable and make sure that these organizations and these, um, these entities these community facilities and, you know, waste management or whatever it is, that we really get people that care and hold our ex- the same equity values. So currently we can't have a, a recycler that is also 
invested in and making, you know, making more of a profit on incineration and landfill, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. That's not equitable. You know, if we, yeah. we're talking about doing the right thing, we need to do the right thing the right way and yeah. do it, um, look at the whole program and really assess how can we really help these communities? How can we really listen to what these communities have been saying they don't want any yeah. longer? And, and uplift everyone. Shashanda, how has the youth been involved to push for equitable solutions in the zero waste movement? What has their impact been and what are they bringing to the table? You have, youth have been, involved, been involved in this movement, this movement since I was a youth. Um, and we stopped an incinerator proposal, the largest incineration proposal. And now we're in, in the classroom of Ben Franklin where we went to school um, to talk with other youth to see if they're aware about the, their surroundings and show them that they can actually make a difference in that. And they are. We have youth that have launched the Zero Waste Challenge, which is a challenge on yourself, a personal challenge around what can I do to really think about what I'm, what I'm buying and really try to fix that. So if I'm buying plastic water bottles every day, then maybe I should get a reusable bottle, uh, which they made with zero waste um, symbols on them and gave them to the other youth. Um, They are also doing development in their community. The lot that I was referring to earlier that was in the land trust, um, that park that they created, do a lot that had nothing but overgrown grass. Um, They have turned that lot into a beautiful space for people to come in. There's a stage on it. Uh, There's a children play area on it, and there's a mini golf course on it. Um, So they're really taking this developing in their community serious um, and they're thinking of other ways um, to develop their community and they're at city council meetings they're talking they're test they're giving testimonies around how this is affecting them they're in the classroom doing research every day around these issues and figuring out oh my god what can we do to change these things looking at red line communities so they're bringing a lot to the table and it's great that they have the seat at the table to do so. Um, so I think that when we look at the equity lens, we look at it through no matter your age, um, you can be involved in this movement and you can make an impact, in which I am proud to say that they're doing. They're growing um, and really connecting to this work because these things are affecting them. Like permanent affordable housing are affecting the, the youth. Um, they're being displaced. Their families are being displaced, and they're watching this every day. And so... That's how they're being involved. They're making that change that they want to see. Greg and Shoshanda just spoke to the youth, but then this larger impact of a community involvement. Why is community involvement and empowerment so critical? And how do you ensure that community-based approaches and solutions are part of that program? Because we can talk about and say, yeah, that's what you should do. But how do we ensure it? Yeah, we talk about it or we think about it as building community power. Uh, Community involvement, empowerment are great. Community power is much better. Uh, Our communities have been uh, devastated. There's no way around that. Uh, The ability, uh, while we as individuals have agency, our communities have largely been left without the tools and the resources to actually exercise powerful and power in a meaningful way. Uh, What we do through this plan, through our efforts, is to uh, build up sufficient power politically so that we can Uh, win victories to secure the tools and the resources needed to engage at the community level with the power you need in order to affect change. 
So concretely, that comes down to what we've been describing here, which are community land trusts, which are uh, great organizations, but critically, they allow the community to actually own land and make decisions. That's a concrete example of what we mean and why it's so so important, is that it's not just community members being involved or being consulted or being advisory board members. It's literally community members in governing roles uh, within relevant institutions and tools that they have developed, that they're at the driver's seat of, and that they're executing uh, a vision and a plan for action. One more point, it's also why we are looking to bring in partners into Baltimore, and we're so excited that uh, businesses are interested in coming to Baltimore that share those values, uh, and it's why our city, why we're pushing our city right now to issue a request for proposals that will uh, bring partners to Baltimore, uh, worker-owned cooperatives, mission-based recyclers, and composters who are aligned with supporting and, and building more community power. Uh, so we're very helpful uh, and we're very serious when we mean that this is a, not just a community-involved, but a community-driven and community-owned process. And there are many cities around the United States and globally that are working towards or would like to implement zero-waste policies. How does gaining city council support drive this initiative forward, and how do you get that council support? Shoshanda, if you could answer. Um, thinking about, like, just to hit on the first part that many cities around the United States globally are working towards this, um, there is this network called Geyer, um, and that is a global world. global alliance for incinerator alternatives yes and they do a lot of like connecting people from globally around and putting us in the same room to talk about the issues that we're facing which are so similar they're like the same things that these are put in low-income communities that these are put into communities of color learning these patterns and fighting these industries all together uh, we're creating that movement that like no community will be a dumping ground. And so I think that the city council, having that support here has helped push a lot of legislation forward. Like even the uh, Fair Development Plan for Zero Waste itself, having champions like Mary Pat Clark and Ed Reisinger to be able to talk to about this and them actually push it forward and stand up with the community. And even having pushing legislation like banning certain types of waste like we just now have a plastic bag ban and we have a styrofoam ban that's coming up and all of those are supporting this plan around that we don't have to be using certain things that we can't get rid of in our um, environment that we have to just they say burn um, we don't need those things because those are one use products that it's not sustainable and so having champions like that that we're able to talk to and have them pushing this forward in council for us and with us is a powerful thing to have. And I think that's what a lot of like cities globally says to me is like, oh, I'm happy that you guys have like that city council support. Like we don't have that. Um, I wish we did have that. So that's a big, that's a big support. For you. And bringing in organizations that have been down this road and have some of that experience so that we can combine efforts in what I like to call zero waste allyship. Uh, so that we can pull from each other's resources and knowledge and information so that we can support each other and bring it up to that level because, you know, it's going to take, you know, it, it, it takes these large conglomerates, manufacturers and, and incinerators and plastics industry and oil industry, and they get their way. So we got to build that large, that large army as well to, to fight back against that force. 
Greg, what is next for Baltimore? How does the fair development plan for zero waste get passed and implemented? And how do people participate in, in these, you know, in, in the zero waste plan? Like, how do you change long learned behaviors? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, in Baltimore, what's coming up next is our election. So we've got our uh, primary election coming up in April, where Baltimore will be choosing its next mayor and many new city council members and a new city council president. So that is a pivotal moment in the future of our city, uh, where our leadership, which is so critically important uh, to implementing the zero waste vision, uh, people are going to make a choice. And so what uh, communities and organizers are doing is to ensure that the zero waste vision that has been fought for for so many years uh, is one of the key issues in this upcoming election. Uh, We're off to a good start. We have a commitment from our city council who just introduced legislation to formally adopt and begin implementation of the Baltimore's Fair Development Plan for Zero Waste. So we're off to a running start, uh, and we need to continue pushing from all levels, from the grassroots to our uh, universities uh, and anchor institutions in Baltimore uh, to put as much momentum and support behind this effort. We realize uh, this is an all-hands-on-deck moment for Baltimore to transition from burning and bearing all of our materials to a fundamentally different system is a real climb. And we are rolling up our sleeves and gearing up for that major undertaking. And the reason it matters that we're all in this together is that the current system we have just isn't working for anybody other than a couple companies that are making massive profits off of this and a a system that that it supports, but it's not working for the people on the ground. And we've got the plan, but to really make it work, it is going to mean a lot of, of change at a lot of levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, learning, learning new things, playing new roles, a new level of agency and responsibility. And we are putting a lot, uh, we're, we're going all in on this. And, we trust, and the reason we're doing that is we put a lot of trust and belief in one another and in our belief that we, uh, we really believe in our communities and we believe in the potential for them to be the places we want them to be. And the really wonderful thing about these requests for proposals is that when the vendors, when these businesses apply for these, what they're called RFPs, they have to put in there uh, their outreach efforts and they are judged on how those out, what they um, pitch is going to be their outreach efforts. And then they're held to that. They're held accountable to that if they don't do it. Shashanda, the first ever National Zero Waste Week conference is hosting online webinars and promoting other waste-related webinars and, and content, including this show, Ecojustice Radio. As part of the United Workers, you're, you're going to be presenting on workers' dignity, environmental justice, and community economic development as it relates to Baltimore's Zero Waste Plan, much of what we talked about today. Why do you feel that the conference is significant, and how can people get involved in the overall conversation? I think that this conference is significant because just like what we were just talking about that um, I think Greg hit on it um, around like this is a big issue and it's affecting all of us. And so I think that this conference is bringing everyone to the table to talk about these efforts that we're doing, to be able to learn more and learn from each other and share that information. That's valuable to meet other people and more people that's dealing with the same thing that's probably just starting off. I mean, that that we can share our tactics with and our strategy, and they can share their vice versa. Um, I think that that's powerful in itself, that we all 
are doing this because we care, because we love our homes and we love that our environment itself and our world, and we don't want it to be gone because at this rate that we're a lot of like incinerators are burning this trash and putting pollution into our air. How long will our earth be able to last through that? That is the question, and I think that we're all trying to make it last longer. And so think of things that's zero waste that doesn't cause harm to people or our environment. Um, I think that's what this conference will be able to do with uh, for us. Melanie, where can people get more information on United Workers, what's happening in Baltimore, and how they can support? Yeah, I think the... The best way to stay in touch is to follow on social media, um, w, um, United Workers, U-N-I-T-E-D, W-R-K-E-R-S dot org, or you can um, search and Google the Fair Development Roundtable and just really stay in touch. Sign up on our website to um, get on the mailing list. And, you know, again, Facebook, the both Facebook pages, um, United Workers and the Fair Development Roundtable, just follow us and, you know, continue to stay connected and get involved. There's an Instagram page as well for the Fair Development Roundtable, too, and yes, it's pretty active. Yes, you are correct. And, and definitely uh, follow the hashtag United Workers, um, United Fair Development Roundtable, and also the, uh, the National Zero Waste Conference, too. Lots of information out there. And your website is fantastic. It has so, such great information on it. And I would warn our listeners, if you do look up Zero Waste Baltimore, just be very particular on the site that you look on because some of the leading sites are actually ran by the incineration facilities. And those are the first ones that come up. So I made that mistake, went on there and started looking and I'm like, wait a minute, this is Willibrator. This is the incineration facility. So (laughs) word to the wise. (laughs) They're out there. Well, thank you, all three of you, for being on the show today. This has been extremely informative. Uh, I really appreciate you being here. Thank you for having us. For sure. And thank you to our guests today, Melanie Thomas, Shoshanda Campbell, and Greg Sattel with United Workers. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been Social Equity in a Zero Waste Baltimore. Also, be sure to check out our seven-part series on the Plastic Plague. Visit us on social media at Ecojustice Radio, SoCal 350, and Adventures in Waste. That's my nonprofit. And if you like what you heard and you want others to be informed, subscribe to the podcast, share the episodes, start a dialogue on social media. listening to Ecojustice Radio, recorded at KPFK Los Angeles, a project of SoCal 350. The show can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and at ecojusticeradio.org. Created by Mark and J.P. Morris, executive producer Jack Eit, engineer Blake Lampkin, interview hosted by Jessica Aldridge from Adventures in Waste, and original music by Javier Cadre. And until next time, remember, the power is yours.